to the book of Psalms. And I'm going to read from Psalm 62, and then I'm going to go back and read from just a verse from Psalm 61. But I want you to turn to the book of Psalms, Psalm 62. Now, we've been talking to you uh, for a number of weeks, uh, I think kindly in a special way, about the Lord Jesus Christ and what He, what he means to us, <coughs> what He means to me. And we want to continue that. We departed from it last Sunday. But I want to continue to talk for a few weeks, God willing. You know, I don't, I don't have anything else to preach but Jesus. There isn't anything else. When you preach, preach the Bible as it is, you preach Jesus Christ. And with all my heart, I want to preach Jesus, just present Jesus Christ. I have no program, no program that takes precedence over Jesus Christ. I have no axe to grind as a preacher. I have no issue to, to preach against uh, above Jesus Christ. Nothing. I just want with all my heart and soul, with the ability that God has given me, limited though it may be, I want with all my soul to present Jesus Christ. I'd like when I stand before the Lord, as all of us will, I would like to be able to stand before the Lord and know that I've done my best to present Jesus Christ, the Savior of sinners, to people. And when we preach the Bible as it is, you do preach Jesus Christ. And I want to preach today on the subject, Jesus is my rock. Now, this is not a far-fetched matter. It is a Bible subject, and it is a Bible description of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we will read some verses that have to do with that. Psalm 62, will you give your prayerful attention to the reading of the Word of God? Now, you know, the, the book of Psalms is a soul book. If, there's, if any book in the Bible could be called a soul book, maybe more than another. The book of Psalms is. It is the book of emotion. It is the book where people, and no one person wrote all the Psalms, but they, where people laid bare their soul. It is the soul book. And I want you to think about it as we read from Psalm 62, where David bears his soul in speaking about his Lord. Truly my soul waiteth upon God. From Him cometh my salvation. He only is my rock and my salvation. He is my defense. I shall not be greatly moved. How long will you imagine mischief against a man? You shall be slain, all of you, as a bowing wall shall you be, and as a tottering fence. They only consult to cast him down from his excellency. They delight in lies. They bless with their mouth, but they curse inwardly. Selah. My soul wait thou only upon God, for my expectation is from Him. He only is my rock and my salvation. He is my defense. I shall not be moved. In God is my salvation and my glory, the rock of my strength and my refuge is in God. Trust in Him at all times, ye people. Pour out your heart before Him. God is a refuge for us. Now then, if you'll just turn back to Psalm 61, I want to read just three or four verses and then call one verse to your attention as a starting place. Hear my cry, O God. Attend unto my prayer. From the end of the earth will I cry unto Thee. When my heart is overwhelmed, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. For thou hast been a shelter for me and a strong tower from the enemy. I will abide in thy tabernacle forever. I will trust in the covert of thy wings, Selah. And I want you to notice the expression in verse 2 as the beginning this morning. The psalmist David prayed and cried unto the Lord. And he said these words, Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. Now there is no question, there's not a shadow of a doubt, 
about what the, the what David is talking about. He's talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. If you were to turn to the book of Deuteronomy and to the 32nd chapter sometime and read that chapter and underscore the word rock in that chapter, you would underscore it several times. You would find also that it begins with a capital letter because it's not talking actually of a rock or stone as you and I know it, but it is speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is called our rock. Now, if there's any doubt in your mind about it, you could turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10 where Paul deals with the subject of the smitten rock. And he said, We did all drink of that spiritual rock, and that rock was Christ. I think it's only been three or four days ago till someone suggested a name to me, the name of a man. And when this man's name was mentioned to me, I made this statement not thinking of the sermon that I would be preaching this morning. I've made it many times. I said, that man is like a rock. And when we use that expression, we're saying, here's a person that's unmovable. Here's a person not easily swayed. Here's a person that is strong. Here's a person that's a source of strength to other people when we refer to them as a rock. Now, the Lord Jesus is called a rock often in the Scripture. I think of this man, David, when he conquered all of his enemies, and he is now on the throne of the people of God, and he's coming near the close of his 40-year reign as king over God's people. And the Lord gave David a song, beautiful song, you could read it in Second Samuel chapter 22. And he begins that song by saying, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. He said, The Lord has delivered me out of the hand of all of my enemies, and the Lord is my rock. And I want to speak to you today for a few minutes on the subject, God, Christ, is our rock. Now, first of all, in the Scripture, he is a smitten rock. One of the greatest episodes, so to speak, in the Old Testament is when God led the children of Israel out of the bondage of Egypt. He delivered them by blood and set them on their way to the land of promise. They had not been in the journey very long until they came to a place where there was no water a place called Horeb. And God said to Moses, I will stand before you there upon the rock. That is a great and mighty rock in Horeb. God said to Moses, Smite the rock, and water shall come, and these people shall have their thirst quenched. So Moses stands, and with that shepherd's rod he had used to bring plagues on the land of Egypt, he smote the rock, and water came out, and the people of God were saved at Horeb by the smitten rock. You see, that's a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the smitten rock. He is the rock that God smote to bring the water of eternal life to those who trust and believe in Him. We sing that beautiful song, Rock of Ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy ribbon side which flowed be of sin the double cure. Rock of ages. Reverend Augustus M. Toplady wrote that song. He wrote Rock of Ages and he wrote it in the midst of a storm, or at least God put it in his heart. This English preacher, on his road one day, when the, on the road one day in England, when the storm came, he felt it was a, to be a fierce storm. He went from the road and found a huge rock jutting up out of the ground. And back under that rock, August Top Lady found shelter till the storm passed over. And the storm was gone. 
And while he was there, and the storm raging all around, God gave him the song, Rock of Ages, clap for me. And I want to say to you this morning, no matter who you may be, you can mark it down. The Lord Jesus Christ is the smitten rock for you. I thank God I can look every man and every woman in this world in the face and say to them, Christ died for you and Christ was smitten for you. When Moses smote the rock, water came. Now that water was free. So is salvation from the smitten rock. Jesus said to the woman at the well, the water that I shall give unto thee. See, salvation is free. You can't buy it. A lot of folks make a mistake in trying to buy it. You can't earn it. Many make the mistake of trying to earn it. You don't deserve it. You can't shape your life up so you'll deserve this water from the smitten rock. It is absolutely free. This water is not only free, but thank God from the smitten rock, it is an abundant supply. There's enough for everyone. Some years ago, I had the privilege to be in that part of the world, and I was taken by a man who lived there and shown a rock with a crevice in it and a stream of water coming from it. And it is the traditional place, it is said, where Moses smote the rock, and the water is still running from that rock this very moment while you're sitting here in this church. You see, it's an abundant supply. God has enough grace and enough love and enough, enough forgiveness for everybody in the whole world. For God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son. When the rock was smitten, it was free and it was abundant. And you know, it was near, right there. Man didn't have to hunt it. He didn't ever have to cry, can he find it? It was right there, right there, where the thirst was, the water was. And that's the same with Christ the smitten rock this morning. He is here, thank God. I believe with all of my heart that the Lord Jesus Christ is in this assembly today. He said, where two or three are gathered together, there I will be in the midst of them. And Jesus Christ, the smitten rock, is in this service this morning. He stands before every single person in this room, the smitten rock. He's not only the smitten rock in the Bible, he is the life-giving rock. We read in Numbers chapter 20, and verse 8, where God spoke to Moses and said, Take the rod and gather the symbol together, thou and Aaron thy brother, and speak unto the rock before their eyes, and it shall give forth his water. I noticed that some years ago. God didn't say the rock shall give forth its water, but the rock shall give forth his water, and thou shalt bring it forth bring forth water out of the rock. You see, he is the life-giving rock. There's no telling this morning how many people in the Old Testament were saved because of the refuge of a rock. You read of great soldiers such as David and Jonathan and others who stood on a rock and fought their enemies till complete victory came. And Christ is such a life-giving rock this morning. God said, speak to the rock. A later time, when uh, uh, smite the rock. A later time, when God's people needed water, God said to Moses, speak to the rock. That's when Moses, angry with the people, smote the rock again. And God was angry with Moses. God said to Moses, I told you to speak to the rock. You smote it. It's already been smitten once at Horeb. Jesus is never crucified but one time. The last time this unconverted world saw the Lord Jesus Christ. He was hanging on a cross 
robed in blood and crowned with thorns. And one time, the Bible says, once in the end of the age hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So he is the life-giving rock. You know, Jesus is the foundation rock. Oh, how he taught people that he was the foundation rock. He said to the disciples, Upon this rock I will build my church. That's why I believe that there's no power on earth that can extinguish the church. Upon this rock that is himself, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I believe in what we call the perpetuity of the church. I believe the church is as eternal as the Son of God Himself because He is the head and we are the body. And as long as the head lives, the church shall live. This church could never be destroyed. It's just like one of the graduates of, graduates of this school had the building, church building burned and someone said, I heard your church burned down. He said, no, you can't burn a church down. A building burned down. You see, this church is founded upon the rock, Christ Jesus. Upon this rock, I'll build my church. That's why Paul said, Other foundation can no man lay than that which is laid, even Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Jesus told about people. He said, Some folks are like the man that built his house upon the sand. The winds came, and the rains came, and the storm came. And listen, the storm will come to your life. Just as sure as you're in this house this morning, the storm will come to every person's life. He said, a man built his house upon the sand. And when the storm came, the fall, the house fell. And great was the fall thereof because it was built on sinking sand. But he said, a man built his house upon the rock. And the storms came. And the house stood firm because it was built upon the rock. Christ Jesus upon a solid foundation. So you see, men build their lives two ways. On the sinking sands of this earthly system or upon Jesus Christ, the blessed Son of God. He who builds his life on Christ shall never fall because it's built upon a rock. You know, you could have a foundation without a house. But you can't have a house that will stand without a foundation. And no man's life will stand unless it's built upon the rock, Christ Jesus. He is the foundation rock. The Bible shows that Jesus is the rejected rock. You see, unto them which be disobedient the stone which the builders disallowed, the same is made the head of the corner and a stone of stumbling and rock of offense Peter preached in the very beginning of the book of Acts. He said, this is the stone which you've rejected, you've set aside. I do not know whether it be true or not, but it is said, in the building of the temple, there was an illustration of this. It is said that in the building of the temple, there were the stones that were brought for the building of the temple and put in their respective places, there was this odd-shaped stone that was brought, and no one knew at the time where it was supposed to go, it seemed. And the weeds grew around it, and time went on, and the temple is near in completion. And someone said, Where does this stone go? And it was determined, tradition tells us, that they said, This is the cornerstone. And the cornerstone is salvation. You know, Jesus is peculiar until you know him as a friend and as a savior. And people reject the Son of God. Jesus is the red stone. To a dear lady uh, this week on a hospital bed with about as deep a physical problem as a young 
mother could have. And I asked her, are you a Christian? And she said, yes, recently. She said, my sister has been telling me I need Christ in my life. And I need to accept him. And I need him. And she said, I've been reading the Bible. And she said, I think I can say to you, yes, I am a Christian. I said, well, then I want to say something to you, uh, lady. The Lord Jesus Christ is going to put you on the other side of this moment of sorrow. And the Lord Jesus Christ is going to put you on the other side of this great time of sorrow in your life. And I want to tell you, my friend, if you reject Jesus Christ, you've rejected the greatest friend that a person could ever have. I have some friends. I believe that shed blood for me. But I want to tell you, I have no friend like Jesus. No friend that sticketh closer than a brother like Jesus. No friend who's always there. No friend who never forsakes and never leaves. No friend who never slumbers and sleeps. But Jesus and he who rejects Jesus Christ has rejected the greatest friend a man has ever had. I took him as a friend more than 48 years ago. And he and I have been walking together. I've been walking with him. And every day I discover more of his majesty, more of his greatness, more of his love, more of his strength, more of his patience, and more of his forgiveness. Oh, my friend, if you're rejecting Jesus Christ, you're rejecting the greatest friend that a man could ever have. You know, not only this, but I must, in order to be true to the Bible, close this brief message by maybe what sounds like an unpleasant thought to some. Jesus is a crushing rock. He is a crushing stone. Uh, uh, he is the stone upon which you can build. Or he is the stone which will destroy you. That's what the Bible says. The book of Daniel says, For as much as thou sawest that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the brass, the clay, the silver, and the gold. Jesus said, The stone which the builders rejected has become the head of the corner. Whosoever shall fall on this stone shall be broken, but on whomsoever it shall fall, it will grind him to powder. You can't dodge Jesus. You can't, you can't be neutral about Jesus. You can't leave Jesus out of your life, really. You're going to have to face him. You will face him now as a friend and Savior, or face him someday as the crushing stone. Why, the book of Revelation tells us that after the Lord has come and judgment has come in, has set in, that men shall cry to the rocks and the mountains, fall on us and hide us from the face of the Lamb that sitteth upon the throne. They shall literally cry, O rocks and mountains, bury us to hide us from the face of the Lamb of God. How much, how much more wonderful than to cry to the rocks of the mountains, hide us. How much more wonderful to do what David did. Cry out. He said, I will cry it to the ends of the earth. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. You know, if you have a sorrow, come to the rock. If you have sin, come to the rock. If you have a battle with Satan, come to the rock. If you need safety, come to the rock. If you need shelter, come to the rock. For Christ is the rock of ages. And he wants to be the rock and foundation in your life and mine. Shall we bow our heads for prayer? Every head bowed and every eye closed. And I want us to to pray for in just a moment. Thank God for Jesus. I tell you, there's, there's no, no way to describe how precious Jesus is to the child of God that's believed in him and trusted him.
And I want you this morning to think about Jesus for a minute. Is he, is he my rock of refuge? Or will he be my crushing stone in the day of judgment? What does Jesus mean to you this morning? Oh, let the Lord speak to your heart. I thank God that as a child of God, not because I'm good or perfect, but because I've believed and trusted in the Lord Jesus, I thank God I can say, He is my rock and my refuge. I want to talk to you tonight about how the how a Christian may know God's will, or maybe I should put it this way, how a Christian may know that God is leading them. And I believe the Bible gives us the answer. How can a Christian know beyond any shadow of a doubt that God is leading them in certain matters? I believe the Bible has an answer. And I want us to read tonight what to me is a very intriguing part of the Bible. I want us to read about a man that put out the fleece. And as a result of his putting out the fleece, we've had that expression for a few thousand years. When people didn't know what to do, many times they've said, we'll put out the fleece. We'll try to find out what is the thing that we are supposed to do at this time. Now I want to start reading in the book of Judges chapter 6. And we'll begin reading with verse 33. You open your Bibles, turn in your Bibles to the book of Judges, Joshua, Judges, Judges chapter 6 and verse 33. Now in this chapter, there are a number of things brought to light. I'd like for you to think of just a couple of them before, even before we read. God it was dealing with the children of Israel. Let me read verse 1 to you of this chapter. The children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord delivered them into the hand of Midian, or the Midianites, seven years. Now this is seven years of awful defeat. The Midianites overcame the people of God in such a, a, such a shameful way that the Bible says God's people made them dens and caves in the rocks and mountains they became like fugitives and vagabonds and literally ran from the Midianites and were overcome for seven years. Every year at harvest time, the Midianites had come into the land of Israel, harvest the Israel's, uh, Israel's crops and steal everything they had and take it back into the land of Midian. It was a shameful period. It was a time of awful defeat and awful weakness in the lives of the people of God. One day there was one of the Lord's people by the name of Gideon. This is the second thing I want you to remember that I'm going to read to you. First thing, God's people were being overcome uh, by the Midianites. Secondly, one day there was one of God's own children one of God's people. He was afraid of the Midianites. His name was Gideon. He had a little handful of wheat and he was hiding behind a wine press where they trot out the grapes to get the, the liquid out of the grapes. He was hiding and threshing a little bit of wheat. And God spoke to him. And God said to him, Gideon, I want to take your life and use your life to deliver the children of Israel out of the bondage of the Midianites. Now with that in mind, let us begin reading at verse 33. And here's a man that put out the fleece to find out the will of God. Verse 33, Then all the Midianites and the Amalekites and the children of the east were gathered together and went over and pitched in the valley of Jezreel. This is where the battle of Armageddon will be fought, in this great valley. And it was a battle almost like the battle of Armageddon that took place 
in the valley of Jezreel. Bible says the Midianites were so multitudinous that they were like grasshoppers upon the earth. And they pitched in the valley of Jezreel. But the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon and he blew a trumpet and Abiezer was gathered after him and he sent messengers throughout all of Manasseh who also was gathered after him and he sent messengers unto Asher and unto Zebulun and unto Naphtali and they came up to meet them. And Gideon said unto God, now notice carefully what we read from here on to the end of the chapter. And Gideon said unto God, If thou wilt save Israel by mine hand, notice every word, if thou wilt save Israel by mine hand, as thou hast said, behold, I will put a fleece of wool in the floor. And if the dew be on the fleece only, and it be dry upon all the earth beside, then shall I know that thou wilt save Israel by mine hand, as thou hast said. And it was so, for he rose up early on the morrow, and thrust the fleece together, and wringed the dew out of the fleece, a bowl full of water. Whatever God does, He always does well. So there's no doubt about it. So when He wrung out the fleece, there was a whole bowl full of water. But now watch it. Gideon said unto God, Let not thine anger be hot against me, and I will speak but this once. Let me prove, I pray thee, but this once with the fleece, let it now be dry upon the fleece. See, this is just the opposite from what he had asked God and what God had did in the first place. Let it now be dry only upon the fleece and upon all the ground. Let there be dew. And God did so that night. For it was dry upon the fleece only, and there was dew on the ground. Now Gideon said unto God, in verse 36, If thou wilt save Israel by my hand, as thou hast said. Now what Gideon wants to find out, he believed, I think, that God was really going to deliver the children of Israel. But what was hard for Gideon to believe was that God was going to use him and God was going to take him and God was going to lead him in the deliverance of the children of Israel. And what Gideon wanted to know, he wanted to know the leadership and the guidance and the will of God in this matter. Oh, it absorbed his whole thinking and his whole soul. He said, Lord, I want proof that thou art going to take my life and use my life in the deliverance of this little handful of people of God from this great host of hundreds of thousands of these heathen enemies. Here's a man that wanted to know uh, the leadership and the guidance of God and the will of God in a particular matter. I believe God's people need guidance from the Lord. I don't think there's any doubt about it. You know, James 1.5 says, And I never come from my office, my study, never. Never do I come from that place up there to this place down here. But what I don't Remind God and use the verse that God has spoken. If any man like wisdom, let him ask of God, who giveth all men liberally and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. But God goes on to say in his word, but let him ask in faith nothing wavering. For he that wavereth is like a 
wave of the sea, driven of the wind and tossed. Let not that man think he shall receive anything of the Lord. But God said, If any man lack wisdom, let him ask of God, who giveth to all men liberally. I believe that Christians need divine guidance in their life. You know, the psalmist said something you and I ought to say tonight. We ought to repeat it after him, or Jeremiah at least, made this statement. He said, O oh Lord, I know that the way of man is not in him, in himself. It is not in man that walketh to guide his steps. Jeremiah said, Lord, one thing I know, it's not in me to guide my steps and to choose my path. I must have divine guidance. The book of Proverbs, the wise man said, For the Lord giveth wisdom, out of his mouth cometh knowledge and understanding. So I'm saying to you tonight, I don't think there's any such thing on this earth and any such person in this church family who does not need divine guidance in their life. Oh, I remember some great times in my own life when I, 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 I must have, I must have, that nothing else would substitute. I must have God's definite leadership in my life. I must see the dew on the fleece and dry all on the ground. And then I must have God invert that miracle and see the fleece dry and dew all on the ground. I remember years ago uh, being called uh, to another church. This church was much, much smaller. I remember when Ms. Malone and I received a call to come as pastor and wife to the First Baptist Church of Fort Worth, Texas, where at that time there were 3,000 people in Sunday school before the great days of Sunday school. And right in the heart of a great metropolitan area where there were hundreds of thousands of people. I remember many a night I wrestled with that thing and I asked God, Lord, show me your guidance and your leadership. And I believe tonight with all my heart that God gave me that leadership and that guidance. And God told me to stay where I was. And I could give you dozens of things tonight. Wonderful things happened in my life and happened in my ministry. Because God, at a period of my life, showed me exactly where I ought to be and what I ought to do. I believe God does that. I don't think there's any such thing as being a Christian and not needing the daily guidance of God in your life. Now, David needed it. David was a man after God's own heart. But one day, David wept until he could weep no more and cried out to God, What shall I do? He said, My family's been taken, my city's been burned, and the enemies have overcome me. Shall I pursue or shall I not pursue? And God gave him as definite a leadership as a human being could ever have. And God led him. And God not only led him and guided him, guided him, but God proved that his leadership was right to him. You know, I think of so many. Moses needed leadership. One day God said to a man named Moses at the backside of the desert, I've chosen you. I want your life. I want your life to lead the children of Israel out of the bondage of Egypt. Moses said to God, I have an impediment of speech. I'm not a good talker. And he said, who will go with me? And God said, my presence shall go with thee. And I'll give you a man 
to go with you who does not have an impediment of speech, your own brother Aaron. And God said, not only that, but there will be a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And you'll just follow God's pillow in the day and God's fire in the night. And you'll know you're walking in the footsteps of God. I say again, I believe Christians need, need the leadership of God. Now, I'm not going to talk to you tonight about some of the great typical truth that centers around this fleece. Some folks think it is a picture, in a way, of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, there was dew when he came, thank God. When the Lord came into this world, there was the dew of God upon him. For he said, Whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst, but it shall be in him a well of water springing up unto everlasting life. But when he died on the cross, when man rejected him, he cried out in that awful hour, I thirst not a drop of water, not one drop of water, when he died with the sins of the world upon him. There's some great typical messages about the fleece, but that's not our concern at this moment. How can a Christian know that God is leading him? First of all, I'd like for you to see why, why Gideon really wanted to know. And let me tell you something, friend, and I do not speak in a threatening manner, manner but you better know. I better know. I have the leadership of God in my life. Gideon wanted to know, it was important to know whether or not God was sending him. I used to read this and, and think, well now, here's a man whose faith failed him. God had said, now I'm going to deliver Israel. And I'm going to do it with you. But he says to God, now, be not angry with me. I, I want a sign I'm putting out a fleece, and I'm going to put it out one night, and I want you to make it wet with dew. And I'm putting it on the earthen floor, and may all the rest of the floor be dry. The next morning, he took that fleece and wrung it, and the Bible said, filled a whole bowl with water. He said to God, now, I want you to reverse the miracle, and I want tomorrow morning the fleece to be as dry as, as dust. And all around upon the earthen floor, I want to see the dew lie. And God did just that. And then Gideon knew that God was leading and God was guiding in his life. And God was going to use him. Now, I, I, don't, I don't criticize Gideon for putting out a fleece. You may say it's a lack of faith, but now, wait a minute. You remember when God said, I'm going to destroy the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And godly Abraham had a nephew by the name of Lot and his family down in the city of Sodom. And Abraham asked God a question. He said, Wilt thou destroy the righteous with the wicked? That's the whole Bible teaches. God will never destroy the righteous with the wicked. But Abraham said, now, Lord, don't be angry with me. Uh, let me test this thing. Let me just keep putting it to you. If they're 50, God said, if they're 50, won't destroy it. If they're 40, if they're 30, if they're 20, if they're 10, if they're 5. God, God's man said, I want to know what the will of God is about my family down in Sodom. My nephew and my kinsmen, I want you to show me. I want you to lead me. So men of God, it's kind of like the man to whom the Lord said, If you believe, all things are possible. The man said, I believe, help thou my unbelief. And that's, if a Christian is honest, 
The faith of every Christian is like that. You have a faith ever so strong. But remember, your soul lives in an enfeebled body upon which has come a divine curse. And this man, Gideon, believed. He had faith. He said, I know God's going to deliver Israel, but I'm such a nobody. When God said to him, Hey there, thou mighty man of valor. Listen, I never laugh and jest at the Bible. But I, I can hardly keep from laughing. Here's Gideon frightened to death, hiding behind the wine press and threshing his wheat and scared to death. And God looks at him and said, Hey there, thou mighty man of valor. I'm sure Gideon must have looked all around, see if there's somebody else around there to whom the Lord was talking. But you see, God not only sees what you are, God sees what you can be when you know that God is leading in your life. So I say every Christian needs divine guidance. And it was important uh, to Gideon to know whether God was going to use him or not. There are four reasons at least. First of all, there was great opposition. And let me tell you, friend, I don't care who you are. It matters not who we might be, if you are ever going to do anything for God, it's not going to be easy, and there's going to be opposition. I don't care what it is. If you sit out and say, I'm going to build a chicken coop, but I'm going to build it for the glory of God, you can mark it down, Satan fight you in trying to build a chicken coop. If it's far God, he'll oppose it. And oh my, the opposition that this man Gideon was to have. The whole earth was filled with people that literally hated the children of God. Uh, so he wanted to know, are you going to do it for me? Because of the great opposition. He wanted to know it because of his great jealousy. Why, the, when he uh, first set out, the men of Ephraim said, Well, now, here you've gone out and you've already had some success. You didn't even invite us to come with you. They were jealous of his success. You might as well mark it down. Uh, like a friend said to me one time, an old saint of God, he said, If you want somebody to be jealous of you, be something and do something for God. And somebody will be jealous of you. He needed to know, Lord, are you going to do it for me? For another thing, he knew that it was going to be a hard task. I read something almost makes me weep about Gideon. When he set out, you know, God gave him a great Sunday school. 32,000 in attendance. God said it's too big, I have to get rid of some of them. I've often thought what would happen to uh, some of us preachers if we had 32,000 in Sunday school and God said, Now, you have too many. You better get rid of some of them. And this is the way I want you to do it. Now, make an announcement. And just make this simple announcement. to say, Everybody that's afraid, go home. Now imagine the Midianite army, like grasshoppers, for a multitude, and a little handful of the people of God, and Gideon got him 32,000 against hundreds of thousands. And God said, get rid of some of them. You know why? When it was all over and the dust settled, God wanted to be able to say, God did it. And the glory will be to God. God said in, in the Old Testament, my glory I will not give to another. And Paul said that no flesh should glory in His presence. And if you ever set out to do something for God and you want to do it for publicity, for yourself, forget it. God said, my glory I'll never give to another. So God said, make this announcement. Everybody's afraid to go home. 22,000 took off. He lost over two-thirds of his Sunday school in with one announcement. There were 10,000 left, and you know, that would have frightened me to death. All this great multitude of people are filling the whole valley of Jezreel, and I've only got 10,000, and the Lord says, you still have too many. 
Isn't that strange? God said, I'll tell you how, to, how I want you to, uh, I want you to just keep paring them down and, and keep weeding them out. And I'll tell you how I want you to do it. I want you to tell them all to get a drink of water. And those that go and lay down and put their face in it and don't look around them and don't watch the enemy and those that lay down to get a drink and just take it easy and really relax at it, tell them all to go home. But those that wade through the water with their face toward the enemy, throwing it up into their mouth with their hands, take them! And only 300. Now listen, friend. I won't tell you, if God took my Sunday school of 32,000 and pared it down to 300, I'd stand and look at that little 300 and I'd say, Lord, I better put a fleece out. I want to know. I know you're going to deliver Israel, but are you going to do it by me? And you know, he knew that one day, and you better know it too, one day he'd be so physically tired and drained, he would feel he could not go another step. That's what the Bible says. The Bible says of this group, faint, faint, yet pursuing. Oh, they said, how can I put one foot in front of the other? But they said, God's leading. I know it, so I'll just keep on going. He knew, he wanted to know for another reason. He knew there was going to be discouragement. He knew that. Anybody in his sense knows that if you set out in the will of God to do anything good, there's going to be discouragement. For instance, when he set out to battle, faint yet pursuing with his little 300, he came to some people supposed to be friends, the men of Succoth. And he said to them, my men are hungry, will you give us bread? They said, listen, you haven't won any battles yet, not giving you anything, going about your business. He went to another group, asked for bread. And they said, no, we're not going to do anything for you. You better, you better depend on it. Why well, I used to think when I first got called to preach, I thought, Everybody's going to come around and just slap you on the back and say, Go get them, Tom. God bless you. We're for you, buddy. We'll stand behind you. And they have. But they've been so far behind. I've lost sight of nearly every one of them. You mark it down. If you set out to do anything for God, you're going to have discouragement. I wish I had time tonight to talk to you a little bit about circumstances. A word that's not even found in the Bible, but it's in the vocabulary of just about every Christian. Well, I'm a victim of the circumstances. Well, how you doing? Pretty good under the circumstances. And no child of God should ever be there. Let me give you a picture. Didn't mean to do it. But you know, when David got out of the will of God and he had 600 soldiers, and um, he was marching with the Philistines, but... In the intervention of God, he was turned back. And he went back and found his city burned and his family gone. And every possession on earth had been taken by the Amalekites. David and these 600 soldiers of his sat down and all their families are gone. And their city is burned. They own nothing but what they have on their backs. And the Bible said they wept until they could weep no more. And the 600 men said, the 600 men, David's soldiers and friends said, we ought to kill you. And they started looking for stones and said, if it weren't for you, we wouldn't be in this mess. We ought to stone you to death. And the Bible said, David encouraged himself and the Lord is God. Now watch something. Here's the circumstance. The city is burned. 600 soldiers are ready to kill their, their general, their captain. All their families are gone. All their possessions gone. They have nothing. That's the circumstance they saw. But God saw something else. David said, shall I pursue? God said, yes, pursue. He set out. He knew not whither he was going. And here as he marches, there looks like a dead man under the tree. And the soldiers stop and they go get him. He's an Egyptian and they said, who are you? said, I'm an Egyptian. What are you doing here? said, I belong to an Amalekite. Three days ago I got sick. My master, an Amalekite, threw me under this tree to die. 
And the, my master and the Amalekites, they're the ones that burned your city and took your possessions and have all your family and all your loved ones. And David said, can you show me where they are? He said, if you swear not to kill me, I can show you. And so they raised him up and gave him water and raisins and bread and he was revived and he led them right straight to the enemy and David overtook them and David slew them and David got his family back and God, God gave him everything he lost and more. God said, I'll give you all the Amalekites have plus what they stole for you and not only that, your little old city of Ziklag and nothing. I'm going to put you in Hebron, a city of fruitfulness, and make you king over my people. Listen, we're foolish to look at circumstances. Look to God. The circumstances were hopeless, but the actual thing was God was doing a mighty favor for David. And when he wept until he could weep no more, God behind the scene was planning one of the greatest things in his life. The main thing is, know God's leading. Gideon wanted to know that. It was important to him to know whether or not God could do the unusual. You see, God got his little army down to 300. And I like this. I just love this. Like I say, I don't laugh, never. I reverence the Bible. It's the sweetest, greatest message in this world to my heart. But I tell you, I, I do grin when I read this. God said with 300 men, I'm going to give you the victory. Well, now what are we going to use for weapons? God said, well, in one hand, I want you to have a pitcher. That's an earthen piece of earthenware. Have a pitcher, and down in that pitcher, I want you to have a candle burning. You ever see a soldier going to war? What are you going to kill them with, buddy? I got this little piece of crockery here with a little candle burning in it. Well, that's not enough. God said, well, wait a minute. I'm going to give you something in the other hand. I'm going to give you a bugle. Bugle? Oh, man, I'll really kill them with bugles. And so a pitcher in one hand with a little candle in it and a bugle in the other. Not a sword in the whole army. God said, I went to Gideon when I give the signal. Blow the trumpet and break the pitcher. And they blew the trumpet. Have you ever heard 300 trumpets at once? I never have. And listen, brothers and sisters, I don't ever want to. I don't want to ever hear 300 trumpets at one, once, especially when I'm already scared. 300 trumpets at once blew. And they break the pitchers, and 300 lights came on. And the Midianites, the Bible says, oh, one Midianite kind of shoved another, and he said, somebody's pushed me. Was you? No, it wasn't me. It's him. We'll kill him. No, you killed Rowan, and we'll kill you. And they killed one another. And here's God's little army with their little old bro broken pitchers and their little lights shining. And the Midianites dead everywhere. Let me tell you, friend, when God calls you and God guides your life, you can depend on victory. There is no failure in the center of God's will for the life of a Christian. And there's no success outside of it. Gideon wanted to know, are you going to do it by me? Are you leading me? It was important to know whether or not God could answer prayer in spite of the weakness of men. He wanted to know that God could answer prayer. Now quickly, I want to mention to you tonight how God leads a child of God. How can I know God is leading me? First of all, God guides by His Word. I'm going to give you some other things. I'm going to give you five ways tonight at least how you can know God is leading and guiding in your life. You know, it's like the old, um, the old uh, captain of the vessel many years ago that when they used to come into the Boston Harbor and some stormy, dark, and foggy nights, 
would get into trouble and there were wrecks and, and, and tragedies. But there was one old, old captain of a vessel. They said he never failed to come right straight in, no matter what kind of night it was. And someone said to him, how do you do it? He said, there are several lights. He said, I get them all lined up until I only see one. And one is behind the other. And I see one light, not several. And when I get them all lined up that way and follow the light, I always go straight in. And let me tell you, friend, there are some things, if you get them lined up, these five things, you can know tonight God is guiding in your life just as sure as you're sitting in this room. First of all, He one light and one way God guides is by the Word of God. Now the psalmist said, Thy Word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. 119th Psalm. When I was born on the farm, we used to go what we call possum hunting. Like Dr. Bob Jones Sr. one time said, if, if, if you want to know how to hunt possums, don't ever ask someone that says opossums because he won't know a thing in the world about it. Always ask somebody that says possum hunting. We used to go possum hunting. Take a little old dog and take a little old kerosene lantern with a globe about that big around before you got out of the yard. Good globe was all messed up with soot all around and not much light, but you carried it in your hand. You could walk where there were what they called test pits for mining companies owned a lot of the property. And there were test pits many feet deep, just a little fragile thing to cover them over. You could walk out in those fields. You could walk where there were rocks and precipices and holes and danger. But you always had the light. Never shine very far. But it was always with you. And always you could see one step at a time. And when you moved, the light moved. And that's the way it is with the Bible. God never says, I'm going to unroll it so you'll see from now till the end of your life. God says, as thy days, so shall thy strength be. God leads by the word. When Frank Holman used to come to my office years ago after graduating the school, having been saved here in this church, he'd come to my office. And Frank Holman and I many a time got down on our knees and he'd weep and he'd say, Oh Lord, where shall I go? I want to go where you're guiding me. One day he took a map and he took a Bible and he said, I'm going, he, he read in the Bible and he said, Lord, out of this Bible, I want you to guide me, and show me where I'm to go. He took that Bible and he was reading in Ezekiel where it said, go south, young man. So he took, he took that map and from the city of Pontiac, he began to draw a line 180 degrees. That'd be due south. And he drew that line as straight as it could be drawn until it hit a city and it hit Richmond, Indiana. He said, that's where I'm going. And more than 20 years, Frank Holman has been there. He has three sons in the ministry. Hundreds of people have been saved. Several people on the mission field. Several people in the ministry and a strong church where people have been saved by the hundreds. Oh yeah, you can know. You don't have to guess about God's will. You can know, but you have to be familiar with the Word of God. I remember Dr. Bob Jones used to laugh and tell about in Bob Jones College back in our day, long time ago, just a little, little handful of students. There was a beautiful young lady and she could just make a piano talk back to you. She could really play it. There were several young men studying to be evangelists. And two of them got their eyes on that young lady who could play the piano. And they just imagined holding campaigns and their wife playing the piano. And what a wonderful wife she'd make. So one day, one went to Dr. Bob Jones Sr. and said, Now, I believe it's God's will for me to marry this young lady. 
Dr. Bob said, well, you know, you have to get the leadership of God. He said, I'm going to be an evangelist. She can play the piano. It's made to order. I believe God wants me to marry her. And Dr. Bob Jones had prayer with him. And he left thinking, the will of God for me to marry. It wasn't but a few hours. Here comes another man, a young man. See, Dr. Bob Jones says, I want to get married and I'm praying for wife and I believe God's leading me. And he said, I want to marry a certain girl. She plays the piano beautifully and gave the same name. Dr. Bob says, wait a minute. God says the husband of one wife and so forth. And he said, you can't violate the word of God and two men can't marry the same woman. Oh no, God's not foolish. And some people act as if God were as big a fool as they are. We need to get it from the Bible, first of all, what the leadership of God is for our life. You know, God guides us by His Holy Spirit. When Jesus was still on earth, talking about to come the Holy Spirit into the world, He said, How be it when He, the Spirit of truth, has come, He will lead you and guide you into all truth. John 16, 13. You know you have a Holy Spirit in you. You know, how, you know you have a Holy Spirit in you that knows, listen to me, the will of God for your life. Romans chapter 8 says He maketh intercession for the saints of God because He knows the will of God for their life. You need the leadership of the Holy Spirit. You better see that pillow of cloud by day and pillar of fire by night. Then you know you're walking after God. God guides us with His eye. Yeah, that's what the Bible says. He guides by His eye. I will guide thee with mine eye. Psalm 32 and 8. I will guide thee with mine eye. You know, God can see around corners and see through mountains. And He can see across the rivers. And He can see down through the yet unborn years. You better let God's eye guide you. I read of Jesus one day. They watched his face, and his face was as though he, it was set like a flint, the Bible says. And his face was as though he would go to Jerusalem. And they said, oh, he's going to Jerusalem to die. You better watch the face of God. You better find his favor and his eyes as you look in his face and seek the leadership of God.